Warning! Today's story contains profanity, political extremism, and instances of racism and nationalism that may be offensive to people of many countries, including, I hope, Americans. Escape Pod 72 September 21st, 2006 Today's story, Joe Steele, by Harry Turtledev. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and I want to talk about a genre that's too often treated as a sort of red-headed stepchild of speculative fiction. Alternate history. It's always been an odd fit for many readers who enjoy science fiction and fantasy, and that's too bad, because it really is one of the purest forms of what-if. I'm not going to go deep into the history of alternate history, or its many forms and flavors. You can read the Wikipedia article if you want to, or the forums at alternatehistory.com. I did enjoy Winston Churchill's alternate alternate history essay, If Lee Had Not Won the Battle of Gettysburg. And I've talked here before about Robbie Taylor's blog, Today in Alternate History, which is a daily timeline of things that never happened. He's looking for contributors, by the way, so check him out. In actual novels and short stories that are classed as alternate history, I notice two very different patterns. In one, you have timelines that diverged from ours because of some outside influence. Time travel's the big one. There are novels where time travelers delivered submachine guns to the south, or time meddlers and time cops chase each other around, or entire modern towns go back in time and conquer the world. One of the cleverest classics is Bring the Jubilee, in which a time traveler starts in an alternate timeline and... Well, I'm not going to spoil it. You also have a lot of novels where magic works, and that changes the political balance of things. So the Regency never ended, or Europe's run by whomever has the best sorcerers, or whatever. Then there's the other pattern, where there's nothing impossible, just something a little bit different. Someone made a different decision, or a message didn't get through in time, or some minor accident happened that changed the entire world. Personally, I like these kinds of stories a little better. They do seem harder to write, You have to communicate what's different without the benefit of an outsider looking in, or something really obvious like a magic system. But it also seems more intellectually honest to me. If you can't change history without a time traveler or a magic wand, then that sort of buys into a perfect world theory, a notion that history developed the only way it could. And that bugs me a little. Plausible alternate histories are a celebration of free will. They illustrate that everything we do, every action and every encounter, may be much more important than we realize. And I like that. And for Escape Pod's first alternate history story, here's a fast and fun piece that fits that second pattern. We present Joe Steele by Harry Turtledove. Mr. Turtledove is the undisputed master of today's alternate history genre, with 94 books according to his official bibliography. There's even a fan wiki, the Turtle Wiki, devoted to creating an encyclopedia of all his worlds. He has a PhD in Byzantine history, and lives in California with his wife, the mystery writer Laura Francos, and their three daughters, who I believe are also writers. That sounds like a dangerous family. This particular story appeared in the anthology Stars, Original Stories Based on the Songs of Janice Ian, edited by Mike Resnick and Janice Ian. This story was inspired by the song God and the FBI, and the opening quotation is included with the permission of Janice Ian. So don't run your mouth and don't disappear. It's story time. Joe Steele by Harry Turtledove Stalin was a Democrat. 
From God and the FBI by Janice Ian. America, 1932. Breadlines, soup kitchens. Brother, can you spare a dime? Banks dying like flies. Brokers swan diving from the 27th floor. Herbert Hoover, dead man walking. Couldn't get re-elected running with the Holy Ghost. Republicans nominate him again anyway. Got nobody better. Don't know how much trouble they're in. Democrats smell blood in the water. Twelve long years sitting on the sidelines. Twelve lean years. Twelve hungry years. Harding, women got the vote for this? Coolidge, I've got a five-dollar bet, Mr. Coolidge, that I can get you to say three words. You lose, says Silent Cal. Hoover, Black Tuesday, the crash. Enough said. It's on his watch. He gets the blame. Blood in the water. Democrats smell it. Whoever they put up, he's going to win. Going to be president, at last. Been so long. Twelve years. Sweet Jesus Christ. They want it so bad they can taste it. Convention time. Chicago, end of June. Humidity's high, heat's higher. Two men left in the fight. One wins the prize. The other, hind tit. Two men left. Franklin D. Roosevelt. D for Delano, mind. Governor of New York, cousin to Teddy Roosevelt, already ran for vice president once, didn't win. Cigarette holder, jaunty angle, wheelchair, paralysis, anguish, courage, as near an aristocrat as America grows. Franklin D. Roosevelt, D. for Delano, and Joe Steele. Joe Steele, congressman from California, not San Francisco, not Knob Hill, good lord no, Fresno. Farm country, that great valley squeezed by mountains east and west. Not a big fellow, Joe Steele. Stands real straight, so you don't notice too much. Mustache, a good-sized one. Thick head of hair just starting to go gray. Eyelids like shutters. When they go down and then come up again, you can't see what was behind them. Aristocrat? Aristocrat like Franklin D. D. for Delano Roosevelt? Don't make me laugh. Folks came from the ass end of nowhere. Got to Fresno six months before he was born. He was a citizen years before they were. Father was a shoemaker. Did some farming later on, too. Mother tended house. That's what women did. They say Steele's not the right name. Not the name he was born with. They say God himself couldn't say that name straight two times running. They say, they say, who gives a good goddamn what they say? This is America. He's Joe Steele now. Then, what's then got to do with it? That was the old country, or near enough. Franklin D. Roosevelt, D. for Delano, and Joe Steele. Chicago Stadium, sweltering. Air conditioning? You've got to be kidding, not even in the hotels. You put on two electric fans when you go back to your room, if you ever do. They stir the air around a little. Cool it? Ha! Hell is where you go for relief from this. First ballot's even, near enough. Roosevelt's got a new deal for people, or says he does. Joe Steele, he's got a four-year plan, or says he does. Got his whole first term mapped out. Farms in trouble? Farmers going broke? We'll make community farms, Joe Steele says. Take farmers, get them working together for a change. Not every man for himself like it has been. People out of work from factories? Build government factories for them. Build dams, build canals, build any damn thing that needs building. Some folks love the notion. Others say it sounds like Trotsky's Russia. 
Just don't say that around Joe Steele. He can't stand Trotsky. You put the two of them in a room together, Joe Steele will bash out Trotsky's brains. First ballot. Even's not even good enough. Democrats have a two-thirds rule. Had it forever. Goddamn two-thirds rule helped start the Civil War. Douglas couldn't get over the hump. The party split. Lincoln won. Five months later, Fort Sumter. All the same, goddamn two-thirds rule still there. Roosevelt's back in New York. Joe Steele's in Fresno. You don't come to a convention till you've won. Out on that smoky, sweaty, stinking Chicago stadium floor, the handlers go toe-to-toe. Roosevelt's got Farley, Howe, Tugwell. Back East people. People everybody knows. They think they're pretty sharp, pretty sly, and they're pretty close to right. Joe Steele's got a smart Jew named Kagan. He's got an Armenian raisin grower's kid named McCoyan. Stas McCoyan's even smarter than Kagan. His brother works for Douglas, designs fighter planes. Lots of brains in that family. And Joe Steele's got this pencil-necked little guy they call the Hammer. A big, mean bruiser gets a name like that hung on him. He's liable to be very bad news. A little scrawny fella? Ten times worse. You think a smart Jew and a smarter Armenian can't skin those back East hotshots? Watch him go at it. And watch the hotshots fight back. Second ballot? Not much change. Third, the same. By then, it's not nighttime anymore. It's a quarter past nine the next morning. Everybody's as near dead as makes no difference. Delegates stagger out of Chicago Stadium to get a little sleep and try it all over again. Second day, same damn thing. Third and fourth, same again. Ballot after ballot. Roosevelt's a little ahead, but only a little. Joe Steele's people, they don't back down. Joe Steele doesn't back down to anybody. Never has, never will. Fifth day, still no winner. Goddamn two-thirds rule. Papers start talking about 1924. Democrats take 103 ballots, 103, to put up John W. Davis. Damn convention takes two and a half weeks. Then what happens? Coolidge cleans his clock. Nobody quite knows what goes on right after that. Some folks say, whisper really, on account of it's safer. The guy they call the Hammer makes a phone call. But nobody knows, except the Hammer, and he's not talking. The Hammer... He wouldn't say boo to a goose. Albany, state executive mansion, where the governor works, where he lives. Governor Roosevelt, Franklin D. D. for Delano Roosevelt. Southwest corner of Engel and Elm, red brick building, big one, built around the Civil War. Governor works on the first floor, lives on the second. State executive mansion, old building. Modern conveniences? Well, sure, but added on, not built in. If they kind of creak sometimes, well, they do, that's all. Old building. Nighttime. Fire. Big fire. Hell of a big fire. Southwest corner of Engel and Elm. Fire hoses? Well, sure. But no water pressure, none to speak of. That's what they say, the ones who get out. Awful lot of people don't. Roosevelt? Roosevelt's in a wheelchair. How's a man in a wheelchair going to get out of a big old fire? The time that fire is finally out, Roosevelt's dead as shoe leather. He's done about medium well, matter of fact, but that don't make the papers. Kagan? Kagan's in Chicago. Stas McCoyan? Same thing. The Hammer? He's in Chicago, too. None of them goes anywhere. They're all there before, during, and after. Nobody ever says anything different. Joe Steele? Joe Steele's in Fresno. 
all the way on the other side of the country. Joe Steele's hands are clean. Nobody ever says anything different. Not very loud, anyhow. And never, never more than once. Joe Steele is shocked, shocked to hear about the fire. Calls it a tragic accident. Calls Roosevelt a worthy rival. Says all the right things. Sounds like he means them. Says the Democrats have to get on with the business of kicking the snot out of the Republicans. Says that's the whole point of the convention. And the eyelids like shutters go down. And then they come up again. And you can't see what's behind them. You can't see one goddamn thing. So they nominate him. What else are they going to do? John Nance Garner? Who the hell ever heard of John Nance Garner? Outside of Texas, John Nance Garner ain't worth a pitcher of warm spit. Hoover might even lick him. No, it's a moment of silence and a round of applause for Franklin D. D. for Delano Roosevelt. And then it's Joe Steele. Joe Steele! Joe Steele! Joe Steele for president! John Nance Garner for vice president. Hoover mostly stays in Washington. When he goes out, he campaigns on his record. Proves how far out of touch he is, don't it? Joe Steele's everywhere. Everywhere. Whistle stops on the train. Car trips. Airplane trips, for crying out loud. In the newsreels, on the radio. Joe Steele and his four-year plan. Drummer can't shack up with a waitress without Joe Steele peeking in the window and telling them both to vote for him. And if they're like everybody else, they do. November 8th, 1932. Hoover takes Delaware. He takes Pennsylvania. He takes Connecticut. And Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Joe Steele takes the country. Every other state. Better than 57% of the vote to less than 40. And coattails? My lord. More than three-fifths of the seats in the Senate. Almost three-quarters of the seats in the House. March 4th, 1933. Joe Steele comes to Washington. Inauguration Day. Hoover's in top hat and tails to go out. Joe Steele's in a flat cloth cap, a collarless shirt, and dungarees to go in. Watch the flashbulbs pop. He takes the oath of office. Herbert Hoover shakes his hand. Herbert Hoover sits down. He's done. He's gone. He's out of this story. Joe Steele speaks. He says, We will have jobs. Labor is a matter of honor, a matter of fame, a matter of valor and heroism. We will have jobs. Oh, how they cheer. He says, Yes, I admit I'm abrupt, but only toward those who harm the people of this country. What is my duty? To stick to my post and fight for them. It isn't in my character to quit. He says, We will do whatever we have to do to get the United States on its feet again. You cannot make a revolution with silk gloves. He holds up his hands. He's worked in his life, Joe Steele has. Those hard, hairy hands show it. More cheers. Loud ones. And he says, When banks fail, they steal the people's money. Have you ever seen a hungry banker? Has anyone in the history of the world ever seen a hungry banker? If I have to choose between the people and the bankers, I choose the people. We will nationalize the banks and save the people's money. This time, the cheers damn near knock him right off the platform. Joe Steele looks out. The eyelids like shutters go down. They come up again. Joe Steele smiles. Congress. Special session. Laws sail through one after another. Nationalize the banks. 
set up community farms for farmers who have lost their land, and for anybody else who wants to join. Factories for workers who have lost their jobs. Dams on every damn river that doesn't have any. That's how it seems, anyway. Dams put people to work, stop floods, and make lots of new electricity. Joe Steele, he's crazy for electricity. Only when the farmer is surrounded by electrical wiring will he become a citizen, he says. The biggest hope and weapon for our country is industry, and making the farmer part of industry. It is impossible to base construction on two different foundations. On the foundation of large-scale and highly concentrated industry, and on the foundation of very fragmented and extremely backward agriculture. Systematically and persistently, we must place agriculture on a new technical basis, the basis of large-scale production, and raise it to the level of an industry. Some people think Joe Steele's just plain crazy. Soon as the laws start passing, the lawsuits start coming. Courts throw out the new laws, one after the next. Joe Steele appeals. Cases go to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says unconstitutional, says you can't do that. Don't tell Joe Steele no. Bad idea. There's a young hotshot in Washington, fellow named J. Edgar Hoover. Smart, tough, faced like a bulldog. Headed the Justice Department Bureau of Investigation since before he was 30. Not even 40 yet. Knows where the bodies are buried. Buried some himself, folks say. Joe Steele calls him to the White House. He leaves. He's smiling. You don't want to see J. Edgar Hoover smile. Trust me, you don't. Back in the Oval Office, Joe Steele's smiling too. Here's somebody he can do business with. Three weeks go by. Supreme Court calls another law unconstitutional. These nine old men are hurting the country, Joe Steele says. Why are they doing that? What can they want? Three more weeks go by. Arrests! Justice Department, Bureau of Investigation, NAB, Supreme Court, Justice Vandevanter, Justice McReynolds, Justice Sutherland, Justice Butler. Treason! Treason and plotting with Hitler! Sensation. Habeas corpus denied. Traitors might flee, Joe Steele says. Anybody who complains sounds like a goddamn Nazi. No ordinary trials, not for the gang of four. Thank you, Walter Libman. Military tribunals. They've got it coming. J. Edgar Hoover has the evidence. Bales of it. Documents. Witnesses. Reichsmarks with the swastikas right there on them. But some people, you just can't figure some people, don't believe it. They figure the justices will come out in court and make J. Edgar and his boys look like a bunch of monkeys. Even if they're in military tribunals, they'll get to speak their piece, right? Right. They will. They do. And they confess. Right there in front of the whole country. On the radio, on the newsreels, in the papers, they confess. We did it. We were wreckers. We wanted to tear down what Joe Steele's building up. We wanted to see the USA go fascist. Better that than what Joe Steele's doing. Oh, and we got our marching orders from Father Coughlin and Huey Long. More arrests. Father Coughlin fesses up in front of a military tribunal, same as the Supreme Court justices. More radio. More newsreels. More newspaper headlines. Huey Long? They shoot the kingfish trying to break out of Leavenworth. That's how they tell it. Shoot him dead, dead, dead. Show off what's left of him on the screen and in the papers. Then they shoot Vandevanter. And McReynolds. And Sutherland. And Butler. It's treason. They confessed. Why the hell not shoot him? 
Sunrise, blindfolds, cigarettes, firing squads. No last words. Die for treason and you don't deserve them. Father Coughlin goes the same way. Somebody gets his last words, though. Order to fire goes out right between Ave and Maria. Ave atque vale, and a hell of a volley to finish him off. Joe Steele picks four new justices. They sail on through the Senate. You think the Supreme Court will say unconstitutional again anytime soon? I sure as hell don't. Don't reckon Joe Steele does either. J. Edgar Hoover goes to the White House again. All of a sudden, it's not the Justice Department Bureau of Investigation. It's the Government Bureau of Investigation. The GBI. J. Edgar's got a face like a bulldog, yeah. He comes out of his talk with Joe Steele. He's wagging his tail like a happy little goddamn bulldog, too. They're made for each other, J. Edgar Hoover and Joe Steele. Trotsky's got Berea. Hitler's got Himmler. And Joe Steele? Joe Steele's got J. Edgar. When 1936 rolls around, folks wonder if the Republicans will run anybody against Joe Steele. They do. Alf Landon, governor of Kansas. The matter with Kansas, some folks call him. But he's got to have balls. More balls than brains running against Joe Steele. Are folks that much better off? Any better off? Who knows for sure. But Joe Steele's doing things. So they're a little hungry on the community farms. So they don't grow a hell of a lot of crops. So what? Somebody cares about them. Cares enough to try and find something new. And after Van Devanter and McReynolds and Sutherland and Butler, if anybody's unhappy, is he going to say so? Would you? Joe Steele says he's got himself a second four-year plan. Says it'll be even bigger than the first one. Doesn't say better. Says bigger. Is there a difference? Not to Joe Steele, there's not. November comes around again. Joe Steele comes around again. Even bigger massacre than against Hoover. Herbert, not J. Edgar. J. Edgar's massacres are different. As Maine goes, so goes Vermont. The rest, it's Joe Steele. All Joe Steele. He takes the oath of office again. Chief Justice is real careful around him. Everybody notices. Nobody says boo, though. You want to watch what you say where Joe Steele can hear. Or J. Edgar. Or anybody else. J. Edgar's got snitches like a stray dog's got fleas. Run your mouth and you'll be sorry. Somebody takes a shot at Joe Steele a couple months after the second term starts. Misses. GBI shoots him dead. Fills him full of holes like a colander. They say his name is Otto Spitzer. Say he's a German. Say he's got Nazi ties. Joe Steele cusses and fumes and shakes his fist at Hitler. And the Fuhrer cusses and fumes and shakes his fist back. And neither one of them can reach the other. Ain't life grand? Not much later, GBI raids the War Department. Newsreels full of tough guys in fedoras carrying Tommy guns leading generals and colonels out of the building with their hands in the air. Hardly any guards at the War Department. Who'd think you needed them? Treason trials. Again. General after general. Colonel after colonel. In bed with the Germans. Evidence. Letters. Photos. GBI shows them off. They must be real. Some confessions. They must be real. Convictions. Sentences. To be shot. Doesn't get any neater than that. Congressman Sam Rayburn gets up on his hind legs. Asks where the devil we're going. Asks what the devil Joe Steele thinks he's doing. Looks like we're heading for hell in a goddamn handbasket. Two days later, big old goddamn traffic smash up. Sam Rayburn dies on the way to the hospital. A loss to the whole country. 
Joe Steele calls it on the radio. The eyelids like shutters go down. They come up. This time, maybe you do know what's back there. We're going wherever Joe Steele damn well pleases. And Joe Steele thinks he's doing whatever he damn well pleases. And you know what else? He's right. Treason trials start for real a few weeks later. Not just justices, not just generals. Folks. Doctors, lawyers, professors, mechanics, bakers, salesmen, housewives. Anybody who talks out of turn. Even GBI men. Joe Steele and J. Edgar take no chances. Miss no tricks. Conviction after conviction after conviction. Where to put them all? What to do with them all? You thought a lot of stuff got built the first four-year plan? Take a gander at the second one. Dams again. Highways. Endless miles of highways. Canals. All dug by hand. More town buildings than you can shake a stick at. Waste a lot of people that way, you say? So what? Plenty more where they came from. Oh, hell yes. Plenty more. And when the camp rats who live finish out their terms, what do you do with them? Send them to Alaska. Send them to North Dakota or Wyoming or Montana or some other place that needs people. Tell them they're fine, long as they stay where they're sent. They don't stay? Back to the camps. That, where they get it in the neck. Most of them stay. Most folks know, by then, Joe Steele means business. Europe. War clouds. Hitler. Trotsky. Appeasement. France and England shaking in their boots. Joe Steele? Joe Steele's neutral. Blames half the troubles in the USA on the goddamn Nazis. Blames the other half on the godless Reds. That takes care of all the blame there is. Any left to stick to Joe Steele? No way. Not a chance. Bullets start flying over there. Joe Steele goes up in front of Congress, makes his famous plague on both your houses speech. We have stood apart, studiously neutral, says Joe Steele. We will go on doing that, because this fight is not worth the red blood of one single American boy. The USA must be neutral in fact as well as name. Neither side over there has a cause worth going to war for. No, sir. The greatest dangers for our country lurk in insidious encroachments for foreign powers by men of zeal. As long as we stamp that out at home, everything will be fine here. And as long as we stay away from Europe's latest foolish war, everything will be fine for us there. But in the end, Joe Steele can't stay away. When France falls, he sees even the Atlantic may not be wide enough to keep Hitler away from the doorstep. He starts selling England as much as it needs as much as he can. If the devil opposed Adolf Hitler, I should endeavor to give him a good notice in the House of Commons, Churchill says. Thus, I thank Joe Steele. And Joe Steele's running for a third term. And Joe Steele wins, too. Wins even bigger than 1936. What's a Wendell Wilkie? Not enough, that's for sure. After all the treason trials and such, some folks are surprised. By this time... Hardly anybody says so out loud, though. By this time, folks know better. Joe Steele and J. Edgar, they kind of laugh about it. Them and the hammer. Somebody says Joe Steele quotes Boss Tweed. As long as I count the votes, what are you going to do about it? Boss Tweed's long dead by then. And if anybody else repeats that, he'll be dead pretty damn quick, too. When Hitler jumps Trotsky, Joe Steele needs six weeks before he starts shipping guns and trucks to Russia. He hates Trotsky that much. But if the Nazis run things from Brest to Vladivostok, that's not so good. So he does. Damn near too late. 
By December, the Nazis are driving on Moscow, sinking American ships in the Atlantic, too. And we sink a couple of German subs. Doesn't make the papers, here or in Europe. If you don't look at it, it's not a war, right? Joe Steele and Hitler think so. And when Joe Steele's bent over squinting towards Europe, the Japs kick him in the ass. Pearl Harbor blows sky high. Philippines bombed, invaded. Dutch East Indies invaded. Malaya. We don't want a war? We've got one anyway. Next morning, Joe Steele comes on the radio. Has to eat his words. Never easy for anybody. Harder if you set yourself up as always right. Joe Steele does it. Just makes like he never said anything different. Not how you remember it? Too bad for you, if you're on your mouth. A grave danger hangs over our country, he says. Everybody with the radio listens. The perfidious military attack on our beloved United States of America, begun on December 7, 1941, continues. There can be no doubt that this short-lived military gain for the Empire of Japan is only an episode. The war with Japan cannot be considered an ordinary war. It is not only a war between two armies and navies. It is also a great war of the entire American people against the Imperial Japanese forces. In this war for freedom, we shall not be alone. Our forces are numberless. The overweening enemy will soon learn this to his cost. Side by side with the U.S. Army and Navy, thousands of workers, community farmers, and scientists are rising to fight the enemy aggressors. The masses of our people will rise up in their millions to repulse the enemy who treacherously attacked our country. A state committee for defense has been formed, in whose hands the entire power of the state has been vested. The committee calls upon all our people to rally around the party of Jefferson and Jackson and Wilson and around the U.S. government, so as self-denyingly to support the U.S. Army and Navy, demolish the enemy, and secure victory. Forward! Congress declares war on Japan. Hitler declares war on the USA. Joe Steele orders up two new military tribunals. Admiral Kimmel, General Short, in charge of Hawaii. Screwed the pooch in Hawaii. Guilty. Shot. Pour encourager les autres. Philippines fall. MacArthur escapes to Australia. Tribunal. Bombers caught on the ground? Yes. Guilty. Shot. MacArthur likes to see his name in the papers. Can't have that kind of general. Only one man gets his name in the papers. Joe Steele. Joe Steele and George Marshall now. They do fine. Marshall wants to win. Wants no fanfares. Joe Steele's kind of man. Same with Nimitz. Same with Eisenhower. Halsey? If Halsey ever loses, he's a dead man. Knows it. Keeps winning. We push back the Japs. Africa Corps runs out of steam in the desert. Germans and Russians fight the biggest goddamn battle in the world at Trotskygrad. Both sides throw men into the meat grinder like it's going out of style. Turns out the Reds have more men to grind up. Nazis lose a whole army. Russians storm west. For a little while, looks like the whole eastern front's coming unglued. Doesn't happen. Stinking Nazis are bastards, but they're pros, if Hitler lets them be. Still, you can see they're on the ropes. It'll take a while, but it's when, not if. Joe Steele and Churchill and Trotsky meet. Start planning what happens next. Trotsky keeps screaming for a real second front. Italy? Screw Italy! Joe Steele smiles. Heaven is every Nazi killing two Reds before he goes down. No more Germans left? No more Russians? Oh, 
too bad. But it starts looking like there aren't enough Krauts to do the trick. Nobody wants Russia running things from Vladivostok to Brest either. Second front happens. Eisenhower commands. Eisenhower doesn't haul glory that belongs to Joe Steele. Smart fellow, Eisenhower. Joe Steele wins fourth term. Republicans don't nominate anybody this time. Philippines fall. Iwo Jima, Okinawa, bomb the shit out of the Japs. Get ready to invade. Germany? American and British hammer. Russian anvil. Smash between them. Smashed flat between them. Hitler blows out his brains. Bye, Adolf. Should have done it sooner. Start shifting men to the Pacific. Operation Downfall makes Normandy look like a kiddie game. Japs fight at beaches, everywhere else. Maniacs, kamikazes, everything they've got. Not enough. We push them back. Hell of a price to pay, but we pay it. Trotsky sees we're winning, jumps in himself. Takes Hokkaido, north part of Honshu. Rest is ours. Incendiaries roast Hirohito on a train between Tokyo and Kyoto. Sayonara, buddy. Japan never does surrender. Nobody in charge left to do it. But the Japs finally stop fighting. Nobody left to do that anymore either, not hardly. End of summer, 46. Joe Steele, on top of the world. Turns out the Nazis were working on an atomic bomb. Not too hard, didn't really believe in it, never got it. But working. Joe Steele hits the ceiling in 16 different places, maybe 18. Calls in Einstein. Why didn't you know about this? He yells. We did, Albert says. I almost wrote you a letter at the start of the war. Joe Steele's eyelids go down. They come up. Yeah, you can see what's back there this time. Rage. Raw, red rage. Why didn't you? He asks, all quiet and scary. I feared you would use it, Einstein answers. Half a dozen words. One death warrant. Einstein? Shot. A Jew. Szilard? Shot. A Jew. Fermi? Shot. A Dago with a Jew wife. Von Neumann? Shot. A Jew. Oppenheimer? Shot. A Jew. There are more. Lots more. Shot, most of them, Jews or not. The rest? To the camps. The professor's plot, the papers call it. All these goddamn eggheads working to keep the U.S. of A. weak. All these goddamn kikes working to keep the U.S. of A. weak. Joe Steele starts muttering maybe Hitler knew what he was doing. Talks to the hammer. Talks to J. Edgar. The wheels begin to turn. Then he finds Teller. Teller says, Turn me loose. I'll bet the son of a bitch in three years or you can have my head. Another goddamn Jew. But one who knows which side his bread's buttered on. Some of the people Teller needs... Feynman, Frisch, Kischakowski, he pulls out of camps. There, but not shot yet. Maybe not shot at all, if they come through. First circle of hell, close enough. Joe Steele tells J. Edgar and the Hammer, go slow. If Teller and the boys come through, maybe some kikes are worth keeping. If not, we know where they are. We know where they live. We can always start up again. Oh, hell yes. And Trotsky, that stinking red bastard... He's working on this shit, too. You bet he is. We caught Nazi high foreheads, and they caught Nazi high foreheads. You think the boys from the master race won't sing for their supper? Sing for their necks? Ah! Werner von Braun had learned Chinese if Chang caught him. Or Mao. And Trotsky's a pain in the ass other ways. World revolution everywhere, he says. 1948? 
His North Japan invades our South Japan. War of liberation, he says. Red Japs sweeping down toward Tokyo, screaming, Banzai! for Trotsky. Trotsky's a Jew, too. Makes Joe Steele like him even better. Hell of a thing. A brand new war, and the old one's hardly done. Trotsky's Japs fight like they're nuts. Our Japs run like they're nuts. It's a walkover. Tell the North Japanese bump up against the U.S. Marines in front of Utsanomiya. If they break through, Tokyo falls. Probably all Honshu with it. But they don't. Marines hold. Give the Red Japs a bloody nose. Everybody knows Russians fly the Gurevich 9 jet fighters with a yellow star inside the rising sun. Not as good as RF-80s, ME-262s with those starred meatballs near enough, but fancier than what we thought those SOBs had. Fighting kind of settles down in the mountains. Now they go forward. Now we do. Places like Sukiyaki Valley and Mamasan Ridge? Folks back home don't know just where they're at, but a lot of kids get buried there. Joe Steele wins term number five as easy as number four. Nobody runs against him. There's a war on. August 6th, 1949. Sapato, capital of North Japan. One bomb, no city. Teller lives. Joe Steele tells Trotsky, Enough is enough. August 9th, 1949. Nagano. Not the capital of South Japan. Maybe the AA around Tokyo is too heavy to risk losing the plane. But a hell of a big place. One bomb, no city. Maybe some German egghead lives too. Trotsky tells Joe Steele, Yeah, enough is enough. Japanese war ends. Status quo antebellum. Now runs Chang off the mainland. More treason trials. Something to keep Joe Steele amused. Getting old. Wins a sixth term almost in his sleep. Dies six weeks after they swear him in again. Natural causes. Who dare mess with him? John Nance Garner. Vice president since 1933. Never says boo all that time. That's why he's VP so long. Finally takes over. First thing he does is order J. Edgar Hoover and the hammer shot. The hammer orders him and J. Edgar Hoover shot. J. Edgar orders both the others shot. J. Edgar lives. J. Edgar takes over. And you thought Joe Steele was trouble? And that was our story. One academic tidbit. That French phrase whose pronunciation I completely mangled, pour encourager les autres, that's from Voltaire. The full quotation, translated, means... In this country, it is good to kill an admiral from time to time, to encourage the others. So, last week's story, Capital of Darkness, by Laura Resnick, got a very mixed response. The first few days, I thought nobody was going to like it. We got more discussion about Doctor Who, and the comments about the story were largely that it was derivative, and that much of the interplay was tedious. I think the harshest comment came from Stunrunner, who said, For future reference, here's a tip for SF writers. If it's already been spoofed on the Simpsons Halloween special, give it a pass. Ouch. Then later on, we did get several positive notes on the story. Here's what was interesting. The story was presented as Christian satire, but everybody who wrote in who liked the story was a professed Christian, or at least knew their Bible pretty well. Michael wrote, In my mind and in my heart, I know that God has got to have the most wicked sense of humor ever encountered by anyone, and I'm sure that he got a huge charge out of the capital of darkness. I think that's pretty cool. We also got a few critiques on the narration and production. 
They are fair comments, but I just want to make one thing clear. That effect with Lucifer's voice, where he sounds like a talking avalanche, that was my fault, not Evo's. I laid the pitch shift and chorus over Evo's narration. It sounded nice and clear in my headphones, less so when driving 70 in my car a few days later. So, lesson learned from that, and I'm sorry to anyone who had trouble understanding the dialogue. It's been a long time since we've done any featured listeners, but it's time to start again. I want to give a happy birthday shout-out to Dylan from New York State. Dylan just turned 16 this past week, and he spent his summer as the head caretaker at a summer camp up in the Adirondack Mountains. That's not high-paying work, but he took some of the money and mailed a substantial donation to a skate pod. I find it humbling when people give under circumstances like that, and you have my sincere thanks, Dylan. I also look forward to reading some of those stories that you said you were thinking about sending us. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Some folks love the notion. Others say it sounds like Dr. O's Magic Kingdom. Just don't say that around John C. Dvorak. He can't stand Creative Commons. You put the two of them in a room together, he'll bash out a ridiculous whining screed. Oh, and our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. In a world where musical freedom is threatened by cliches, four men in kabuki masks arise to do something different. And do it very, very loud. And for a special closing song, with her direct permission, we'll play Janice Ian's song that inspired today's story, God and the FBI. This is from her album by the same name, published by Wyndham Hill. It's all cool beats and thought-provoking lyrics. I highly recommend it. That was our show for this week. Next week, we will return to your regularly scheduled protagonists and plots. In the meantime, have fun.
to hide from God. 